<clears throat> well, let's go to the first epistle of John, 1 John, and chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 7 through 14. I'm going to hone in and focus on verses 12 to 14, and mainly on the the groups of individuals mentioned in those verses, verses uh, uh, 12 to, to 14. But I'll read from verse 7. And this is, uh, of course, God's Word. And it is a good thing for us just to hear it in our own language. It's better to hear it in the Hebrew or the Greek, in this case the Greek. But it's, uh, it's a good thing to hear it in our, in our own language. We can uh, ascertain what God is truly telling His people, even from our, our English uh, version. Now I'm going to read from the King James, but the ESV or whatever version you have will, will probably get the job done just as well. But hear now this, this word of God from the first epistle John not necessarily wrote, but is entitled the first uh, letter of John, uh, chapter 2, beginning verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment <coughs> which ye have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Uh, probably the scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, word in the synagogue that they heard. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. He that said he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. So that light to which the apostle refers is the Life and light of Jesus Christ shining within his people. The light shines within us by the presence of his Holy Spirit. That's new. <clears throat> and then verses, uh, verse uh, 12 and 14, well, verse 11, But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not whether he, go, whether he goes, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. So hatred blinds. Uh, blinds us. And then 12 to 14. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. May God bless this word to us, 
Again, Lord Jesus, we are thankful to be in your presence now as a people, a precious people, a worshiping people, uh, a people that are doing not only the right thing, but the wise thing, and that is to come into your presence to worship uh, through prayer and praise and hearing of thy word. And today... Uh, administering the sacrament of baptism. And we do thank you for being our God, revealing yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, I'm going to focus mainly on verses 12 to 14, mainly on verses 12 and 13. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him, that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. Notice the difference between the fathers, because ye have known him, that is from the beginning, and the children, the little children, because ye have known the Father. They didn't know him from the beginning, obviously. But some of the people that to whom John is writing, maybe were around when Jesus rose from the dead. You know, we're talking 50 years, 40 years later, and these people are older now, and they saw it from the beginning. They, they heard the resurrected Christ. They maybe even witnessed him. The children did not. So, that's the difference right there. Uh, but let's, let's back up a little, and I want to inform you that there are three ways to consider this, so I'm not going to be dogmatic here, even though I'm correct. But I'm not going to be dogmatic, because there are different ways to interpret this. Even in the OPC. The first way to look at it is that these, these differences between little children... By the way, the word little children used in verse 12 is different from little children used in verse 13. That's two Greek words, two different Greek words. Uh-huh. And there's significance to that. But anyway, there are some, I don't think there are many, if any, really, that I've read or heard, but maybe there are, that would look at this as little children, fathers, and young men. Uh, as age categories. They would look at it physically and differences in ages. There are others, most, that I have read, that I have heard, that interpret it not, uh, uh, age is not the factor here, it's referring to maturity. Maturity levels, sanctification levels. So there are Babes in Christ. But a babe in Christ could be 50 years old. So the age is not a qualifier here to them. Most of them. Most people hold, it, hold that. Certainly all the Baptists do. But even the Reform hold to that view. And then there is the combination of both. Age is a factor here, the physical age of the group of people, as well as the spiritual 
maturity of these various groups. Guess what my view is? Both. Come on. Both. It's obvious. Both things are to be considered. Age is a factor in one's maturity level, as well as sanctification and uh, uh, growth in Christ by the Spirit. And that, that is going to be my view that I'm bringing before you. But I just wanted to point that up and out to you. The main view, most people, if you listen or read in commentaries, will say that this has to do with maturity. Spiritual maturity. That's it. I disagree. I think it has partly to do with that, but not fully. It's not doing justice to the grammar. It's not doing justice to the obvious meaning and the impression that the readers would have or the hearers would have when, when this letter is read. And so the Greek word uh, technion that's used in verse 12, uh, little children, is, is a word that means uh, a babe, a darling, a little child, a disciple. Literally, that's what it means. That's what the word means. Uh, then there's a, the Greek word uh, patera, is, a, is the word for father or parent, ancestor, founder, forefather, progenitor. That's what the word means. And then the uh, neoniskos uh, means a, a youth, a young man. Literally, that's what it means. That's what the Greek words mean. So there's three different Greek words, actually four, because uh, patia is used in verse 13 to refer to little children, and that word means infant, uh, minor, uh, subordinate. And so you have these these Greek words meaning different things and uh, referring to different groups of people. At least grammatically, that's what they're doing. To spiritualize the whole thing, I think, is, is unnecessary. Dr. L. Clark points out that at the beginning of verse 7, so let's just go back to verse 7 for a minute. And what do you have there? Brethren. That word, brethren, literally means beloved ones. Beloved. And that may be in your version. Beloved. Uh, so at the, uh, Dr. Clark says, of verse 7, the apostle is speaking a message of, or a word of endearment. Beloved. Beloved ones. And then in verses 12 to 14, he passes from the message to the overall group of Christians, to the local family fellowship consisting of little children, fathers, young men. And implied in these categories, little children, fathers, and young men, is the breakdown of the entire family. Which includes babies, children, young men and women, fathers and mothers. That's the makeup of a church fellowship. In every church, that's the makeup of a fellowship. Children, young people, older people. 
Dr. Clark says, if I'm going to know the secret of fellowship in the family of the Lord around my father, in light of my Savior, that fellowship has got to be on the basis of a standard. And the standard he has pointed up and out is the word of God. That's the what we go on as the family of God, the fellowship of God, the covenant family of God. We base everything that we say and do in the church on the word. Yeah, there are going to be differences amongst us. I just pointed out that there are differences in interpretation here. But that's where we're, that's what we're focused on, the Word of God. And we want to get it right and straight. And we can't get everything right and straight. There's going to be disagreements. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't make someone who disagrees with me or you unsaved. Or some sort of terrible person. Someone we ought to reject and talk negatively about him or her. Our fellowship is with the Father and His Son. And that comes from verse 3, right? Of First John chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye, shall may, that ye may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what the church family... Uh, is about fellowship with God, relationship with God, intimate relationship with God at every level of the family, children, young people, the elderly. We're all in fellowship with God. Now, again, John is writing to the elect. He's writing to the chosen people of God. He's writing to the true church, true Christians. Not everyone is a true Christian that's in the church. But he's writing to us. True Christians who have the Spirit, who have fellowship with the Father. Children, young people, older people. The Bible clearly indicates in both Old and New Testaments that uh, God gives from, uh, God saves from the womb to the edge of the tomb. Clearly in the scriptures, that's the case. God saves from the womb to the edge of the tomb. From the womb. Seth. When Eve gave birth to Seth, and this is the only one she said about I gave birth to the man. Why did she say that? Because she believed that he was the man, Seth, that he was the man that was going to crush the head of the Satan, uh, the head of the serpent. Now, she was wrong about that, but right that the Christ would come from that line of Seth, whom Satan tried to squelch, put out, put out the line. But Abel rose up, and there was Enoch and Methuselah, Moses was considered a special child, floating on the river. They saw him special. David conceived in conception from his mother's womb. Jeremiah set apart as a prophet by God before he was born. 
John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb at the appearance of Mary with the babe in her womb, Jesus. And at the edge, at the edge of the tomb, you know, deathbed conversion, so to speak, the thief on the cross. God saves from the womb to the edge of the tomb, as I like to put it. So let's look at uh, how to interpret little children in verse 12 and then in verse 13. Uh, Now, as I said, you can interpret these just not regarding age, but uh, regarding spiritual maturity and uh, sanctification uh, levels. So little children would be referring to those who are newly born again. And they're not going to be any age. And that's what most people look at it. Any age. Uh, Of course, if you're going to interpret little children as referring to the newly born again, then it excludes little children, literally. And infants. Because you can't know that they've been born again. Right? Because they haven't made a profession. They can't make a profession. So, the little children, the word means infant. The word means little ones. But they're excluded. Because only the young, the newly born again, that have made a profession of faith, and have and then baptized. That's the reference. So, it's, it's kind of a silly way to, to think about it, but... It's the way people do, do, do think about it, interpret it. The little children in verse 12 and in verse 13 mean the newly born again. Uh, the uh, fathers, that's pretty simple, straightforward. Fathers are heads of households and the elderly men uh, in the church, especially the elders of the church. And the young men uh, is a reference, well, a young man would be considered any man under the age of 40, uh, between the ages like 20 and 40. That would be a young man, literally. That's the way they interpret it. That's the way most people look at it, many people look at it. Now, uh, as I said, I'm giving you what I think it is, and I'm not being a dogmatist about about this. I'm not judging anyone. In a terrible sense, we shouldn't do that uh, because, as I said, brothers and sisters from all persuasions, uh, including the Reformed churches, including the OPC, interpret it the way, uh, figuratively or spiritually, age is not a factor. I don't do that. So I'm just giving you a heads up here. And I want you to think about it. You know, that's why I'm sharing this with you. I, 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 I could just avoid saying anything about the other, the other opinions. But I want you to think about it. I want you to consider it. I want you to read about it. Now, don't listen to the YouTube because you're going to have just a slew of things that are, that are not necessarily correct. But... Uh, this is something that is is precious. It's the word of God, and we want to know about it. 
Now, I want to point out to you, and I think most people would agree with this, age is not a condition for salvation. Right? Age is not a condition for salvation. A person can be saved at any age by God. There's nothing in the scripture that, that denies that children can't be, can be saved. Nothing in the scripture that says a child before the age of five or before the cannot be saved. Nothing in the scripture says that. So age is not a condition for salvation. And of course, a person that's very old, maybe at the edge of the uh, of life, there when he's going to just before he crosses the threshold into the other world, can be saved. Age is not a factor. And I dare say, and this might uh, cause your ears to perk up a bit. Age is not a condition for salvation. Neither is faith a condition. Neither is profession of faith a condition for salvation. None of those things are conditions for salvation. Age, faith, profession, they're not conditions for salvation. We don't want to get into a conditional covenant, do we? We don't want to get into a conditional salvation, do we? That we have to meet certain requirements, certain conditions, before we can be judged to be saved. That's not biblical. Certainly not reformed. Salvation is what? If you're going to... Okay, so the pastor told us that faith, profession, age, they're not conditions for salvation. What is salvation then? How do we get salvation? Salvation is all, all, all of grace. All of grace. Salvation through faith is a grace, is a gift, is not a condition. If Faith and profession are conditions, then we're talking about works of man. But let's read these verses once again like normal people would. Like, like the people of the day that are receiving this epistle from John. And so we want to uh, to hear it, like the church family who is sitting there hearing this, maybe for the first time, read in the congregation. They didn't have Bibles, but this letter is read. I write you, verse 12, I write you, little children, because your sins are forgiven forgiven you for his name's sake. Now here, this word, little children, uh, little children, the Greek word that's used in this particular verse, has been used by the apostle throughout his letter to refer to the entire congregation. John was calling them 
all his little children. Any age, because John's like 90 years old now, and he's writing to a congregation of people of all ages, and he's addressing them as his children, like little babies, little children. Not referring to babes in Christ necessarily that have just been born again, but the whole congregation as his little children. It's a term of endearment that he uses throughout this epistle, as he did in verse, uh, verse 7 when he called them beloved. He's, he's tender-hearted towards them. He's saying, my little children. <clears throat> John has referred to the entire Christian family he birthed as his little children. My born ones. He's calling them. But then he goes on in verses 13 and 14 to delineate age groups. Right? In verse 13, I write unto you fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. And I talked about that just a moment ago, that these fathers, they're older people, and they have known the Lord, perhaps they even seen the resurrected Lord. And now they're like in their 60s and so on. And so you have known him from the beginning. I write unto you young men because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children because ye have known the father. And then he, he repeats himself again in verse 14 and says a couple of different things. So it's here where I think the logical disconnect happens for pastors and theologians and scholars who argue that John is not distinguishing by age but rather by spiritual sanctified maturity. My, this is why bright, bright people cannot understand the creation account. Six days he created everything, not six eons. It, it, it's clear he's distinguishing three groups of people in their ages. By their ages. That's crystal clear. Consider this. You're sitting in a room with a group of people waiting for your turn. The attendant comes into the room and, and calls your name. Peter. Peter rises and follows the attendant. Not Mary, not Sue, not Jacob, Peter. John writes his letter to a group of Christians, ordinary people, like you, like me. These are not scholars, these are not theologians, these are not <laughs> grammar experts, they're not apostles or prophets. He addresses regular, everyday people who have families, who have jobs in the community. They're laborers, they're housewives, they're children. The apostle in this letter addresses the group. Little children, young men, fathers. The age groups are going to respond accordingly, right? The fathers are not going to respond as little children. They're not going to think he's addressing them as little children. The young men aren't either. And the young men are not going to consider themselves fathers in the church. 
even if they are gifted and they know their theology and all that stuff. We don't call 20-year-old or 19-year-old a father in the church. They're just not considered that. Even if you want to consider it from a, a, a spiritual, mature level. You wouldn't call a 19-year-old a father of the church. It, there might be an exception to that, but usually not. The group is not going to try to ascertain their spiritual level of maturity. Oh, John is referring to babes in Christ. And I'm 50 years old, but I'm a little child. And the young man is not going to... They're not going to be doing that. They're going to receive the letter and the address of the letter like, like you would, like I would. The people are going to assess the letter as it is written. The apostle addressing these different age groups in his letter. It's not a theological treatise like Hebrews or or Romans. The apostle John is tender-hearted. He's reaching out to the Christian family. God is tenderly reaching out to the congregation of his people, to the family of his people. He's reaching out. My little children, verse 12, beloved ones, your sins are forgiven. Men, women, boys and girls, like I said, this particular word John uses to refer to the entire church family. Of all ages, And no matter what age you are, your sins are forgiven. The sins of God's children, the sins of God's family, his elect and chosen people, whatever age they are, are all forgiven. Doesn't matter how many, how young, what kind of sins, all your sins. Whatever age, all the sins of all God's people are forgiven. That's what he's saying here. Your entire church family, true Christians, you're all forgiven. Not a one will rise up on the day of judgment to accuse you. John Stott points out that the verb forgiven is in the perfect tense, indicating that your sins have been and remain forever forgiven. No devil, no enemy, no person, including yourself, will be able to lay charge, any charge against you. And why? He tells us why in this verse, in verse 12. He says, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Notice that. It's for his name's sake. It's not because of your baptism that your sins are forgiven or washed away. It's not because of your profession of faith that God's promise, promise of forgiveness comes true. Rather, it is because of God's promise of forgiveness made possible through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ that your baptism, that your profession, that your faith rings true. You got it reversed, people. Or many people do. 
In other words, it is your status as his child according to the election of grace that make all the promises of God, yea, and amen in Jesus Christ. It's for his name's sake, not for yours. It's not a work. That means something. It's for his name's sake that my salvation is established. It's not because I've been baptized. It's not because I made some profession before a congregation. Professions cut a dime a dozen. It's because of him. It's his name's sake that my sins have been forgiven. All my sins. More of Christ. Less of me. We train up our children in a way that they should go so that when they're old, they're not going to depart from it. At two years of age, my granddaughter, she knew that we ought to pray before meals. Two years old. Sometimes she wanted to praise before the meal, and so we sang. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Two years old. I didn't know what that meant totally, but she knew to praise God you sing this. And that God is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Two. John, who is the disciple of love, whom Jesus loved, would have us judge each other, our children included, in love. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I am asking you to consider these, uh, this message and consider what we're about to do in baptism with the judgment of love, as, uh, as, as Pastor Keyes says. So we train up our children in the faith. We, di- we discipline them when necessary. We encourage them. We catechize them, first by memorization, then by explanation. And we strengthen them to grow. We do all we can for them. Why? Because they are members of our family, right? Fathers, mothers do all they can for their children because they're members of their family, flesh and blood, but they're also members of the church family. We do all we can for our little ones in the church. All we can. If, as they grow... They show a rebellious spirit. We instruct some more. We discipline some more. If that doesn't work, eventually we have to tell it to the church. If that doesn't work, we hand them over to Satan for a season. In the hope and in the prayer, God will bring them to their knees. But we pray, God, that it never comes to pass for any of our youngsters here and for any of us that we fall away. On the faith. Nevertheless, God knows his own, and their sins and their sins only have been and are forever forgiven for his name's sake. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's all of him, it's all of grace. None of me. Dear people, listen to the apostle of love. Judge according to love. God's love for his own. God's love for his, his house. His household. 
we're about to administer the sacrament of baptism to an infant, I know. We, we note that baptism is seldom, if ever, tied to the moment. Right? In the case of an adult, their baptism happens after they are converted, sometimes years after they're converted. It's never really, you can almost say, it's never tied to the moment. Not anymore. Sometimes in the case of an infant, their baptism comes before they're actually saved, or before their actual salvation. Uh, we do not know if God has placed in an infant the incorrupt, uh, his incorruptible seed uh, given by the Holy Spirit. We, we don't know that. But they learn fast. They learn fast. As I said in verse 13, the Greek word in, in this verse is different from that used in verse 12. And here he clearly means young children, minors, subordinates. And it didn't take very long for all my children to recognize their father. Right? It says here uh, in, uh, in, in verse 13, I write unto you fathers, I write unto you young men, and I write unto you little children because you know the father. It, it took my, my children, I'd say a few months, not even, to know the difference between their father's voice and face and a stranger's. Any stranger. They knew the difference at two, three months. True, they didn't understand all that fatherhood entails, but they knew the difference between the father's uh, voice and face and a stranger. How long before they can come to know their Heavenly Father? In VBS this year, we had uh, three and four-year-olds. And you just heard that little note, how it helped their ch- children to grow. I don't know if they were three and four. I think one of them was, was a four-year-old, but I'm not sure. But we had three and four-year-olds. And I can tell you that every single one of those three and four-year-olds that were sitting here, every single one knew that God was the Heavenly Father the creator that created them and also created all things. Every single one of them knew that. Now, do they know for real? Hey, we'll find out. But they understood that. That there is their Father on earth and there's Heavenly Father that created them and created everything else. They were sitting right there. They all said yes. They all knew it. They didn't understand what all that meant, creator, and who created what, and all that. But they knew that there was a heavenly father and that he was a creator. God knows his own, not through their baptism uh, or even their profession of faith. He knows them before the foundation of the world, and he will raise them up through his word and by his spirit. He instructs us in the word how to pray what to teach and preach, how to properly administer the sacraments, and to whom. And we believe it's to us and to our children. In the church on earth, the wheat and the tares, they grow together. God made that clear in his kingdom parables. The wheat and the tares grow together. They're going to be believers and unbelievers, whether they've been baptized or or made a profession of faith as an adult. They're going to be unbelievers that do that in the church. And you can't root them all out. Because they're going to appear like they belong. 
They're not going to do anything that rises to the level of an excommunication. It's in the church. Whether they've been baptized at, as an infant or an adult, whether they made a profession as an adult, there will be tears mixed in with the wheat. God says that he's going to straighten this out on the day of Christ Jesus when he returns. That's not for us. We just do what we're told. So we suffer the little children to come unto him. We do not hinder them. For of such is the kingdom of God, said Jesus. And they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Dear people, let's pray. Heavenly Lord, we are thankful to be here. We're thankful to be here this morning. We're thankful to be uh, <coughs> worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And we're thankful for the honesty uh, uh, that was pro- brought forth from the Word. There are different approaches, or different uh, interpretations of, from the, of this text. And we pray that uh, as we consider uh, these uh, words, these, uh, this text in prayer, and uh, read it more and study it more, that we will come to know it better. Uh, And we are thankful as a family of God that we are a family of God, true family of God. And yet we are praying that you would send your grace more and more unto us that we might grow in a better way, in a more faithful way, in a way that that loves one another dearly and deep. Like John the Apostle loved this whole family, loved the whole family of God. Called them his little children and uh, with, with affection, his beloved ones. His born ones. And so we ought to treat each other with the utmost respect and love and care. And we are thankful to be informed of this and by your spirit enable to do it. And these things we, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.